Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the show. I was so happy to have Michael James Wong over to my flat a few weeks back for plenty of tea, waffles, and the conversation that you're about to hear. Michael is the founder of Just Breathe and a leading voice in the global movement for modern mindfulness. He is an author, speaker, and meditation teacher who is dedicated to expanding the conversation around the mind and mental health. Michael writes books about hope and is the voice behind the Just Breathe Meditation app. In his inspiring and beautiful new book, Sen Bazuru, Small Steps for Hope, Healing and Happiness, Michael shares a personal collection of short stories and teachings, accompanied by traditional hand-painted proverbs and prayers. Together, these bring to life gentle wisdoms and universal truths to guide a meaningful way of living. Shared throughout the book in 12 Straightforward Steps is also the powerful practice of Orozuru, the art of folding paper cranes, a journey that will encourage you to slow down and create a hopeful perspective for the future. This conversation is one to consume quietly and mindfully. I know Michael wouldn't want it any other way. Let's start as we always do. I would love to hear if you have some kind of morning routine. Uh, The short answer is yes, but if I was going to reframe it, if it's okay, I actually talk about things in rituals because rituals actually gives us these beautiful insights when we have them in our lives. Um, For me, I'm a big meditator um, by nature. And so in the mornings, aside from my uh, little puppy who's in my alarm clock, which I don't obviously need a real one anymore, jumps on the bed, says hi. And, you know, actually it might seem a bit odd, but my first ritual in the morning is going to take the dog out to the bathroom, taking Gus out to the toilet, which is actually really lovely because it's kind of like our little quiet time in the, in the garden in the backyard. And he obviously does his business. And I just kind of have, you know, three to five minutes to myself just to kind of wake up. And it's really interesting for me these days because it's so different because it's quite a urgent to pause moment because he's in a rush, but then we get outside and he's got all the time that he needs. So for me, my morning rituals are a little bathroom break with Gus and then uh, sitting straight down to do a morning meditation and then just taking time to, to, to make a tea and then actually just kind of letting the day unfold. Lovely. And I'm interested to hear more about your meditation practice. Do you meditate for the same amount of time every day or does it vary? Uh, so for me, I mean, uh, as a, as a, I guess I would put myself in the category of someone who's med- been meditating a while, and I come from a background of uh, lots of different styles of practice, but my most dedicated style of practice is Vedic meditation. And so for me, it's a 20-minute practice in the morning. I know that's similar for, for or the same for you and Max. Um, but as well, at the same time, being a teacher of this practice and many different styles of practices, there's lots that I would offer. But for me personally, my personal practice is a 20 minute practice in the morning and the afternoon. Are you a tea person or a coffee person? I think you're a tea person, right? I'm a tea person now um, because I don't drink coffee anymore. Um, But I'm not a breakfast person. I'm usually a tea 
to lunch person. Wonderful stuff. I would actually love to wind back the clocks a little bit and hear more about where you grew up and some of your memories of childhood. I come from a very, uh, I guess, small category of people who have uh, a few different passports and many different homes. I was born in New Zealand and um, my family uh, has been there for a few generations. Uh, my parents and my grandparents were born there. Myself and my brother were born there. Um, and then uh, when I was, I think, about three or four, we moved to Santa Monica, California, uh, yes. where I grew up. Um, it's a lovely place to grow up. And, you know, my sister was born there. And so I spent kind of from the age of three to 25 um, in Los Angeles, just kind of living. Um, I grew up a few blocks from the beach. You know, my, uh, it's kind of like my high school was the high school that Saved by the Bell was modeled after. And Baywatch was the beach tower that we used to go to down the road. It was kind of these things that you don't realize are kind of the rest of the world sees is kind of quite an interesting or glamorous thing, but it was just kind of like the local places you go to, um, you know, and a very kind of loving, supportive family. I always say that I grew up in a New Zealand household in the heart of Santa Monica, because within the four walls of our house, everything was very Kiwi. You know, it was kind of, you know, very loving, open conversations, very warm and welcoming as a culture. Um, you know, our, you know, we'd have kind of beans on toast and, and, and meat pies growing up where if you had that in LA, it was just a foreign thing. Um, and so for me, it was kind of a really gentle, wonderful childhood growing up with the family. And it was kind of a place I first learned really just kind of what life was like in the fast lane and also in the slow lane, because outside everything was LA, a million miles an hour. Everything was kind of wanted to be interesting and cool and diversive and all these kind of things. And inside the home, it was just, we're here, we're having fun. We're kind of in our little kind of small space. And that kind of really, for me, was where I kind of grew into this space of really having this interest in seeing the rest of the world. And so I spent some time in Australia, and I've lived in London now. And so kind of this is kind of where life has brought me. And it's been just a really nice journey of kind of not really having a master plan, but just kind of seeing where the wind takes you and then meeting really, really lovely people along the way. That's really beautiful. I love how you let things unfold. I came across you first as a yoga teacher and then a meditation teacher, but tell us how you got into these practices. So, I mean, my journey with that has always been since kind of when I was in Los Angeles and I grew up, you know, even as a teenager, I kind of bought into the LA lifestyle. Everything was cool. Everything was fast. I thought I was super cool. And obviously as you get older, you realize you're not, but you know, yoga and meditation came to me not by choice. It was something that kind of hit me out of the blue where I had a few friends that said, Hey, just come and give this a try. You know, I was probably 17, 18 and I was like, no, I play sports. I do this. I'm okay. I've got enough things to do. And the way it, it kind of first was introduced to me was almost like a challenge of like, why don't you just see if you can do this? You know, why don't you just see if you can make it through one of kind of those little jests that you kind of do with your friends. And the first time I arrived, it kind of hit me sideways because it was physically challenging it was stimulating in thought, but at the same time, it was something that was, it was a space I'd never been in before, you know, where you weren't expected to do anything. You were actually just welcome to hang out, to enjoy, to take it at your own pace. And at that age, it was kind of really different for me because I had never had those influences kind of around in my life where it was actually just, you know, this isn't about winning. This isn't about competing. 
And it kind of stayed with me all through my life. And it was always just a pastime and a passion and something I enjoyed. It followed me to Australia, to London. And, you know, I've been teaching as a yoga and meditation teacher for about 13, 14 years now. And it, for me, it was just a way to just learn more about myself, to know more about myself. And then through the process of it all, it's just been a beautiful way to meet amazing people and be a part of communities and get connected with people like yourself and lots of other people I've met along the way. The common thread that seems to tie all of your work together is community and a sense of community. Why is community so important to you and what you do? I, I think for me, I, I grew up feeling like an outsider a bit. Um, you know, when you're, when you're kind of young and you're, you know, that the one kid from New Zealand in LA, you know, I I remember very distinctly when I was younger, when you, I still might be like this now, but when you moved to the U S I had a little card that I had to carry in my wallet, which was like a photocopy and it, it said resident alien. That's what it meant to be an immigrant in the U S resident alien. And so automatically I'd always felt as an outsider, right? I also come from, a, you know, a, an Asian background. I come from a space where, you know, I probably had a little bit of an accent, like a Kiwi accent in the US. And so, you know, at a young age, I always felt like an outsider. And that was always the case as well. Perhaps as I grew up a little bit trying to compete with the life and lifestyle of LA, which wasn't for me, but I felt like I needed to be involved in it. And so it was important to really find spaces that I felt like I belonged. And then as I became more comfortable with myself, as the work I do maybe became a bit more clear in my mind, it was always really important to make sure that we're creating spaces for others so they feel welcomed and belong. And so while I do teach meditation and yoga and write and teach all these things, the essence of all my work is really about building and supporting communities, giving people a sense of belonging. And then the topic of conversation can be anything, yoga, meditation, art, life, dance, music, whatever it is, as long as people feel like it's a safe space for them. Mm, I love that so much. Let us talk about your brand new book, Sem Bazuru. It is so, so stunning. And last week ahead of this interview, I was in a bit of a panic because I hadn't read it yet. And I like to come to these interviews really, really prepared. And I was like, Michael, if there's anything you could do to get me a copy of the book before we record, I'd be so grateful. And I was in such a rush. And then one of the first things I read in your book was how you don't mean for it to be read in a hurry. You want people to really take their time with it. Anyway, you very kindly sent me a beautiful copy and I have read quite a bit of it and I am enjoying it so much. It's just so fantastic. So for anyone who doesn't know, please can you explain what Sembazuru means and also what they can expect from this beautiful book? Well, thank you for saying that. And I mean, it, it's human nature to kind of rush into things like anything, especially if we're excited or we're anticipating something. You know, this book was really written as a very... Uh, delicate, gentle read. I mean, I a lot of my teachings these days come from the idea of gentle wisdoms, things that we can learn from, but not in a way that we're trying to make them hard learnings. Um, Senbazuru is also a Japanese tradition of folding a thousand paper cranes, which is, for me, was is, is a really beautiful tradition. And it's something I learned growing up, but it's also something that um, has a lot of connection to a lot of people in their lives. You know, we've all probably seen a paper crane. We, we know it holds kind of this universal symbol of hope. And it's kind of this thing that has a lot of either familiarity or nostalgia to it. And so 
for me as a teacher, we, I always use folding paper cranes or, you know, little things like this as ways to slow people down to say, actually do this and slow down or try this and see how frustrated you feel during, or see how much fun you have. And that tells you a lot about yourself. These are kind of real world tools. And so the tradition of folding paper cranes, as well as the beautiful stories that go with it, kind of combined with maybe gentle wisdoms in the book. And as you go through it, and you've probably seen some of them, there's kind of, uh, there's lots of little stories, nothing longer than a few pages that are kind of stories about my life, little wisdoms I've learned, things that have been shared by my parents or things I've learned kind of wandering out in the world. And it's just a way to kind of maybe, what I always tend to say is like remind us of things we already know. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of things in life aren't new, they're just forgotten or we're moving too fast to remember or we're moving too quickly to actually appreciate. And so I worked with a, an amazing illustrator. Her name's Nikki Priest, who's one of my really good friends and also our kind of the, the creative force behind all of our projects, who has done so many beautiful traditional illustrations in the book. And obviously we're in audio, so you can't see it. But as you look through the book, there's so many beautiful hand-painted traditional uh, illustrations that really just bring things to life. And the whole way the book's constructed, it's dense, it's hardback, it's a mindful practice in its own right, just holding it and going through it and looking at the detail and reading the proverbs or the meditations or the poems and hopefully giving us all a little bit, a sense of kind of a, a space to exhale and go, ah, and just remember. The book has just come at the most perfect time because I think for a lot of us, life is picking up pace again and it's just the perfect thing to read to remind ourselves to slow down. But let us talk about the process of folding paper Obviously, this seems like quite a small practice, but it's actually turned out to be a really big part of your life. Do you remember the first time you made a paper crane? I'm not sure I remember the exact first time, but I do remember it was when I was quite young at home, kind of with the family, um, you know, learning how to do them. And it's a bit like maybe it was just arts and crafts kind of at the dinner table, or at the same time, it was kind of learning traditions or just learning longevity. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people have kind of different things that they kind of, you know, whether it's a coloring book or kind of, you know, learning how to make things, you know, in my family, you learn how to fold a paper crane. And it was something that was tactile and kind of challenging yet simple, but also had a beautiful tradition behind a beautiful story and elegance to it. And, um, you know, it's just something that's carried through. And it's something that even long before this book, I would just fold a crane and slide it in a birthday card to someone. Or, you know, you'd fold some cranes and leave them on a windowsill or kind of, kind of if I had a big kind of event or a meeting, you know, it's something to do to calm me down. And with the practice of mindfulness, a lot of it is really just how do we have tools in our lives that we learn to support our presence of mind? You know, and you and I can speak very, maybe obviously on things like meditation, because I know you you guys meditate quite regularly, if not you know daily, and those things are, are great kind of obvious tools. But for some people, we need even simpler ones, or ones that are already in their lives, or ones that actually can be so simplistic, like paper sitting on the table. This will slow me down. And for me, that's kind of how it kind of brought this story into a way of creating into a book. But it was just something that we always had kind of this uh, kind of kind of call it like mindful, nostalgic kind of memory that was connected to my family, connected to tradition, connected to something really hopeful um, that, I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to create it into something that it is now, but it's, it, would, it will always have a place within my life and lifestyle, regardless of kind of how it shows up now. 
I love this quote from the book. You say, every day in our lives, we're tempted by life's urgency and disparity, but perhaps we're simply moving too fast in search of an experience that requires a gentle pace. You question what would be lost or gained if we were to slow down. So I'm wondering, did you write this pre-lockdown? I mean, it was a very timely uh, coincidence in that sense. I mean, uh, I've been working on some different book ideas over the past few years. And um, at the beginning of the, the lockdown last year, <clears throat> you know, most times my work is teaching and traveling. And so I'm in 20, 30 countries a year. And so actually it was the lockdown overnight cleared the calendar. And so even in the spirit of, of that passage you just read, you know, it was given or gifted to me a long moment of silence or pause or gentleness. And so I was, you know, I was kind of putting down kind of what it is that for me I was doing to kind of bring myself back to a kind of a steadier place because I was a little bit panicked of, okay, well, am I going to be able to travel again? I've, I've lost all the, this work. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And just the general uncertainty of how everyone's life was. And so this book came about off of a conversation with uh, a few friends, um, with my mom, just about, you know, what if we just take this time to recommit to hopefulness, but to also to make sure we do it gently and so this book was actually written right in the first few months of the lockdown. So April, May, June, July of last year in 2020, not only was I gifted the time, but it was almost a way of kind of like, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, like putting the practice into real life, making it present. And it was, okay, well, I have this space. Now let's put my attention very meaningfully into something like this. And that's kind of how I spent kind of the lockdown um, because I was at home and because of certain personal considerations, I couldn't go out and I was kind of shielding. And so it was very much this beautiful bubble of quiet and it was using that time in a really meaningful way. Before we started recording, we were having a chat about how you add things to your life for say a year and incorporate them in your rituals and habits or you take certain things away and I thought this was really interesting so I was wondering if you could explain a bit more about it. I mean I think maybe for a lot of people you've had a point in your life where you've kind of taken something out of your life lifestyle or diet you know simplistically maybe you haven't drank alcohol for a month you stopped you know eating french fries for a week whatever it is um, or you know you got better sleep um, about, I want to say seven or eight years ago for me, it was trying to really live the practice in a different way. And obviously meditation and yoga are valuable tools, but it's how does that cross over into the real world? How does it actually impact or how does it show us what we kind of have learned in our lifestyles? And so every single year from the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve to midnight the next year, uh, something comes out of my life or lifestyle. Now, sometimes it's food or drink related. Other times it's um, choices, behaviors, or commitments. Um, and so, for example, like this year, uh, and my girlfriend does it with me now as well, uh, we haven't, we've taken gluten out of uh, our diets. Last year we took out chocolate and the year before it was, you know, uh, coffee and these type of things. And it actually, for me, the reason that we do it for a year is it gives it a behavior change. It allows you to see the long-term impact, you know, because everyone can, you know, take something out for a few weeks, but actually you end up 
craving it or you end up adjusting to it. But actually, when you do it with longevity, it becomes part of your your livelihood. It becomes part of your life. And that you actually start to see your own personal change and growth from it. You know, and like a coffee's an example. And while I used to drink coffee and I don't now, it wasn't the coffee taking it wasn't the having no coffee that was the issue. It was the fact that I couldn't meet friends for a coffee. I couldn't, you know, um, go and, you know, have those little kind of afternoon catch-ups because those social moments were taken out. And so then it was kind of saying, oh, I'll have a tea. It changes your language. It changes the way you interact with people. It also shows you times where you feel like you, you have these urgencies to explain things when you don't. You say, no, thanks. I'll have tea. And you learn a lot about yourself. And so it's been something I've always done. And we kind of call it like a, a mindful sabbatical, you know, for a year. But it's also important to reintroduce it and then start something new. So it doesn't become kind of, you don't become a prisoner of an intention. Yeah, it just sounds like such an interesting practice. And I think you learn a lot about yourself from it. It comes from one of the principles that I teach in a lot of our trainings, which is the most people talk about intention, right? And so we have, we have all these good intentions in our lives. We intend to do this, however it is, but intention is actually the first part of the equation. And so the equation that I always kind of lean towards is you have intention and then attention, right? Because it's, I have an intention to speak kindly to myself, but can I pay attention as I'm doing this? Can I notice, right? Can I expand the awareness? And when you combine those things, you actually end up in a place of connection because you have far more of a deeper connection to the way you are, the way you behave, the way you interact, the things that trigger you. And it gives you a space of choice to really appreciate. These are choices I'm doing, whether you drink or you don't drink, whether you choose to go on vacation or not go on vacation, whether you choose to wear socks or not socks. It's, it's not about the actual item. It's about the knowingness and the awareness to make a choice that works for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I love this line from your book. Remember, attention and success are not equal endeavors. I'd love to hear about how you define success and happiness. I mean, it's it's it has to be personal, right? And I, and I actually there's there's certain words. Um, and maybe there's a theme here. There's certain words in my life I, I tend to not use. Um, 
uh, success being one of them because success is kind of an, an antiquated kind of uh, stipulation that you learn maybe in school or at work or in society of, you know, success is very, very closely for me related to expectation. And, and it's usually not your own expectation. You know, your, you know, parents have a, this is what success looks like. Your, you know, your school says this is what you should be when you grow up and all these kind of things. And so, you know, success is an aspect of removing kind of expectations. And at the same time, when we talk about happiness, happiness is, you know, has to be an element of, you know, appreciation, but also not uh, impacted by the emotion of every day. Because a lot of times we hook our happiness on items or occasions or people or situations. And, you know, I'll be really happy when this person calls me back or I'll be really happy when, you know, uh, I write a book or I'll be really happy when this happens. Where happiness, I find, tends to be an outward observation, whereas I tend to use joy as an inward connection. You know, it's a feeling. Um, But kind of in the skew of maybe how we look at it in our everyday lives, if happiness and success and joy, if they all fundamentally come from a place of how does it make you feel and do you feel, you know, connected, whole, complete? Do you feel a sense of, um, you know, fulfillment, meaningfulness, value, quality? For me, these are far more relevant ways in which we can kind of see the world or talk about it as opposed to always trying to aspire or strive for success or happiness. I think it's just so important because whether it's personal or professional, we set these goals and landmarks for ourselves in life. And once we achieve some of those goals, if we haven't been mindful in our approach during that time of work, we don't enjoy the moment when we get there. I think it's called a rival fallacy and it just can feel really anticlimactic. Yeah. And a lot of times when you achieve something, yeah, you feel that emptiness or you just kind of tick and move on to the next thing. And human nature has this way of always asking or looking for what's next. Even in big moments of celebration or big moments of accomplishment or achievement, we can work for months or years or our whole lives towards things. And even when we accomplish them, we kind of go, okay, well, now what? And rather than going, wow, we go, well, now what do I do? Or what's next? Or I need to do this next thing. And and I often talk about it in the sense of this is just the beauty of being human, right? This is the inconsequential nature of being human, of striving for what's next. And maybe if we can then become more aware of these things, we can then choose to really simplify ourselves and go, actually, you know, what not what's next, but what is now and just appreciate that for whatever it is. I'm interested that we're having this conversation in the week that your book is being released because obviously that's a big deal. Um, It's, you know, one of the landmarks that we've spoken about and it's something that you've put so much time, energy and love into. I'm interested to know, do you have any practices that you're doing this week to kind of keep you balanced during this time? Yeah, I mean, there there is obviously a, a sense of uh, excitement or enjoyment that the book is finally being able to be shared. Um, I think maybe a lot of my a lot of my work comes from the place of being of service. And you know, while it is exciting to see a book that's come to life and it has my name on it and pictures that my friends have drawn in it, I also look you know, maybe a few steps further, going, can this help people? Can this be supportive? Um, but I also think it's important 
to your question is you, you have to have people around you that do one of two things. And, you know, you have, you're always going to have people that inspire you or lift you up or kind of give you that excitement. Right. But you also need people that ground you, you know, I'm a middle child of an older brother and a younger sister. And so for me, it's easy. You call home. Hey, what's going on? Oh, the books are, uh, uh, you know, the books coming out this week. Oh, wonderful. Oh, by the way, uh, have you sent me that thing? Uh, you know, that email I was asking for three weeks ago. And it's a bit like, oh yeah. Right. And you have these little things that, that come from lifelong friendships or family, which aren't to knock you back, but to give you that sense of just being human. And for me, especially this week, you know, it's, it's leaning back into even now as we're emerging, it's just catching up with friends I haven't seen in a long time who actually, with a lot of love, aren't overly excited about the book. You know, I have a few friends who, who make it a point to say, I haven't ordered it. <laughs> just because they're friends in that sense, like, maybe you could just show me. You know, and and to me, that's actually quite endearing because it's that sense of just real friendship going, I love you. I'm sure the book is great, but I love you. Let's talk about you. Let's catch up about life. You know, not every occasion needs to have a point or a purpose or even a celebration. I think that's really important. You know, I speak as a millennial who often ties their self-worth to their professional achievements. And I think so often, you know, we have quite leaky identities. I think our generation, our work really trickles into our personal and there's not much of a distinction between the two sometimes and that separation is just so so important yeah and i think that's that's really really important i think we wear so many labels throughout our lives or we strive to 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 identify in certain ways and and i think um, i talk about it somewhere in the book where you know it's just the easiest way for for us to feel like people understand us and that comes from a human nature of wanting to have that connection which is why a lot of times we don't have those urgencies with friends we grew up with as kids or family members because they know you and they actually, I mean, I have so many friends I grew up with, I have no idea what to do for work. I couldn't even kind of begin to explain, do I love my little sister any less because she has this job or this kind of, you know, partner or she made this thing, you know, in the kitchen. It's a bit like, I love you. And those are just things. And so, you know, it really has to come back to this place of getting really comfortable knowing that, you as as the human being is the most valuable thing. Everything else is literally a layer like you put on a sweatshirt and they can be put on and off, but the essence of who you are has to be the place that you find your comfort. I absolutely love the section in the book where you talk about how much you enjoy your practice of a meaningful wander and how important it is for you to break from familiar attachments and intentionally disrupt the addictions of predictability during this time. Tell us more because obviously this podcast touches a lot on routines and habits so why is it so important to break from these things i think i think this year has shown us quite well for a lot of people that every familiar thing has been shifted right a lot of people have come inside for long periods of time they've been around people or not around people for long periods of time and actually for me we do get swept up in this joy of familiarity and routines and rituals because they do teach us so much but i think when it becomes too um too specific or too frequent we actually take away the joy of simple discovery or meaningful wonders of you know this sense of you know speed goes with familiarity right the same way as from your house here you probably walk the same way to the tube most days right and actually if you just went to the left instead of the right you might realize there's this tree or that thing but your brain goes well it's going to take five minutes longer 
or your brain's going to go, well, what's the point? And actually it's in those moments where we don't realize that that's where you come up with a new idea, create a new recipe. You go, oh, I actually need to call this person back. Or you know what? I don't need to rush because I'm just meeting this friend who's always going to be 20 minutes late. So I do have the time. And I think breaking that familiarity, especially in a generation where all of us are really built on maybe um, strong routines and, and meaningful habituation, it is important to have meaningful newness, right? Moments that are unplanned because it's in discovery, which actually creates curiosity and curiosity creates inspiration. Inspiration actually creates a sense of growth and development for us. I find it really comforting hearing you talk about how when we're dealing with those moments of feeling creatively stumped, how important that is. I love how you write about how important it is to commit to the things that bring you joy in life. Why is this practice so important? It's, I mean, it, it has to be important because it has to be, you know, for me, it's what life has to be about or is about. And maybe, uh, you know, where we can talk about finding joy. And I think there is this element of so many of us trying to figure out life or figure out joy. It's, it goes back to that spirit of remembering and maybe less about finding joy, but just feeling joy. You know, it's, it's really leaning into what I tend to think about. There's so many things in our lives that are indescribably wonderful that sometimes we just bypass, right? Sitting in the bath, moving your face by the window if it's sunny, all these things that just, you know, having a wonderful scoop of ice cream, these things that just go, I don't even need the words to describe this feeling. And it's those feelings that we tend to think are rare or beautifully rare that we kind of take in infrequently. And it's actually when we start to feel and lean into those moments, we can actually feel that joy, embody it, understand it, and then find it in places that are maybe a little bit more mundane or a little bit more every day, you know, and you can find that halfway through a cup of tea. You can find that through, you know, a conversation with someone on the street. You can find that just flicking through books, trying to find a quote that you like. But if you're, if your brain is in this gear of achievement, success, moving through the list of things to do, we actually miss out on this moment of feeling joy as it is or as, as it is familiar because we forget so often uh, these feelings because we're in the mind trying to think about the achievement of whatever we're trying to do, right? It goes back to that spirit of, of meditation practice. It's, it's not about doing, it's about being, it's about non-striving. It's about, um, you know, not having to achieve, but to just, you know, be in a space of awareness or feeling. These seem like such small, but effective kind of modes of resistance. Yeah. And I mean, think it's, it's maybe ways to resist the speed of life that everyone believes we should be moving at and it's it's one of those things where you know again with human nature we see this person's left moving fast so we think oh we need to speed up with them and then you see this person to the right you know doing these 25 things and you go oh we need to be doing these 25 things and oftentimes as humans we just mirror each other and it actually takes a sense of courage or bravery to go i'm okay you know i don't need to do that Right. And it's that thing where we kind of, you know, we, if you bump into a friend and you go, Hey, how's your day going? They're probably going to say they're busy somewhere in their, in their response. And if you were to kind of respond, Oh, I'm not really doing anything today. They're going to look at you with a bit of panic. And these things are just kind of maybe, you know, 
reminders that we need to say to ourselves very gently, actually, it's okay to be resistant or to resist the urgencies of life. I'm always keen to hear meditation teachers talk about their relationship with the digital world. As someone who really appreciates the slower things in life, how do you balance things like social media? I mean, first and foremost, I'm human. And so the reality is, is the digital world or digital technology is a natural part of, or is now a natural part of how life is lived. For me, I see it as a tool and I don't see it as maybe uh, essential, but definitely digital or uh, technology has a certain place in a, in a mindful practice. And it goes back to kind of our chat a few minutes ago of it's it's about choices. It's not about blaming the technology for stealing your attention. It's about, are you aware enough that you're making the choice to let it have your attention? So, I mean, we, you know, we have our Just Breathe Meditation app, which is a really beautiful kind of home and community for short meditation practices, breathing practices. There's some wonderful music, some soundscapes, stuff for sleep and anxiety, all the kinds of things that are, again, tools to support. And while it is in a digital technology space, it's first and foremost a place of community, of connection, a place to find quiet. And if technology can help as a tool to support the choices that you're making. So if I'm making a choice, I need to sleep better or sleep earlier and I can use you know, the app to help support that. Great. That's a choice. But if I find myself in a place of, you know, I'm scrolling through Instagram or I'm just mindlessly just bumping around on the internet, then actually it's not about the moment I become aware of that. It's not about the technology being the issue. It's about me being aware of what I'm doing. Right. And I, one of the teachings that I always come back to, and this is kind of one of the essence of what we do in, in meditation trainings is that there's always going to be noise in our lives, right? Mentally or physically or visually. And there's always going to be a point in your brain where you're going to acknowledge that noise. You acknowledge it, but that's the place where you have a choice to indulge or a choice to resist. But so often we see it as a, a slippery slope to indulgence without realizing that it's a point of acknowledgement and a choice of indulgence as, a, as opposed to a point of acknowledgement and a choice to resist. Totally. Thank you for explaining that so beautifully. And I will leave a link to the app in the show notes. How would you feel about doing a quick fire round? Sure. Quick fire with Michael. Breakfast, lunch or dinner? Dinner. Roybus tea or matcha tea? Roybus, always. Mindfulness or meditation? One of the same, two sides of a coin. Nice. Paper or card? Paper. Yoga or dancing? Yoga. The journey or the arrival? The journey. London or LA? Depends which is sunnier. Podcasts or Netflix? Podcasts. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Routine or spontaneity? Spontaneity. And finally, early night or night owl? Early night. Lovely. That was quick fire with Michael. I'd love to hear what's your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit. Well, the obvious one is going to be meditation, but the one that people might probably not know is um, 
speak to my family daily. My parents live in LA. My sister and her husband live in Oakland, California. My brother and his family live in Melbourne, Australia. It's text messaging, photos, WhatsApp, group chats, those type of things, which is why technology is great. And for me, that's important. Is there anything that you've read, watched or listened to lately that you would love to recommend? Um, well, what I've listened to lately, actually what I've read lately, the book I'm reading now, and maybe obviously it's a very common, obvious thing to share. I'm reading Matt Haig's Midnight Library, which is a beautiful book. Uh, I'm reading Sam Lee's Nightingale book, which is a beautiful storytelling about um, nightingales. Um, but also at the same time, I, I, I tend to listen to a podcast called uh, 99% Invisible, which is a, a, a lovely podcast about just the beautiful things in life that you don't see always. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, great. yeah, it's really, really wonderful. I'll share it with you. Um, and then, you know, if I'm listening to music and I mean, I'll make a bold statement that I say don't I don't listen to a huge amount of music because I prefer silence. But when I do listen to music, um, you know, I'm oftentimes listening to just music of friends. You know, I have some amazing friends who do wonderful music in uh, kind of in kind of a mindfulness meditation space. DJ Soul Rising, Harley, um, and it's just really beautiful to kind of have time to to just sit and be with it. But controversially perverse silence is there one thing that you could advise listeners to do to help them find joy in their everyday lives yes i would say the the biggest thing that can tempt us into finding joy is feeling that we need to find it uh as opposed to just feel it and when you slow down and you actually just take notice of the things you do in your day that put a smile on your face or someone around you goes wow, it looks like you're having fun. Remember how you feel in those moments and then carry that through everything else you do. I love that so much. And finally, what is one thing that you hope your older self will have achieved? That's a great question. I don't tend to look too far ahead or too far back, but maybe, you know, when I'm a bit older, I'd, I'd like to think that uh, I, I left behind um, some spaces that people feel comfortable and safe and communities that uh, aren't reliant on anyone, but just allow people to have a sense of belonging. Michael, thank you so much. This has just been such a pleasure as I knew it would be. And huge congratulations on your stunning new book. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and make sure you check out the episode notes for links to Michael, his book and his app. If you liked this conversation, do be sure to check out my interview with Buddhist monk and meditation teacher Gilong Tupton from series one. I think you might like it. As always, if you're enjoying the series, please be sure to leave a five-star review on iTunes and you can always share the episode on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamana and tagging the show at ATST Podcast. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.